That was quick. We're live. Yes. Hey, welcome. Jack Kelly live. Happy and succeeding in the future of work. And today I'm really super excited to have Wayne Hu coming on, who's a venture capitalist. So anybody who spent time online recently have seen VCs, venture capitalists, talking about the companies they built, all these kind of cool innovations. And I thought it'd be great to have somebody who's a partner at Signal Fire, who is a venture capitalist, who kind of is in the trenches doing this thing to understand what it's all about. Um, so without further ado, wait, how about you could just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about, you know, what you do as a VC? Yeah, happy to. Um, so I, I'm Wayne. I've been a VC for about a decade now. I actually got my start at uh, Kleiner Perkins, which was one of the more storied venture yeah. franchises out there. And, um, you know, I had one of these sort of canonical venture experiences when I where I was given an office and a desk and kind of, you know, expected to kind of come back to the team with, with something. And um, that was um, sort of, uh, I think, a, a pretty typical kind of lone wolf experience in venture capital. It's, it's um, that a lot of folks um, find surprising about VC. And I actually ended up um, going back to Google, uh, joining the mothership there, kind of whipsawing the other, the other direction uh, to be part of a team before I got uh, the call up from Chris Farmer, who started Signalfire, the current firm I'm at right now, which is um, very much kind of a hybrid venture fund that's actually structured like a tech company. So it kind of gave me the opportunity to, to marry both sides, you know, the best of both worlds of, you know, that team-based environment of being an operator, as well as the amazing part of VC, which is the ability to ramp up infinite learning curves over and over and learn from amazing founders, you know? And so that's, that's kind of um, my journey, uh, what brought me into kind of this specific, um, uh, this specific, I guess, uh, uh, part of venture. And I've been here, I've been at Signalfire for, I guess, the last seven years now. Uh, it's been my dream job ever since. What's surprising when you mentioned, so you go into Kleiner Perkins, right, one of the godfathers, right, of the whole VC ecosystem. And then what, they give you a desk and a phone and a computer, go, okay, get some deals. I, I'm shocked. I didn't know that that's, it works that way, that it's so entrepreneurial. It is very, uh, I think the number one surprise most people have when they come into venture and, and work in the job is just how lonely it is. And I don't necessarily mean lonely as in you don't talk to people, like you're not like, you know, you're just in a, in a vacuum kind of pontificating on ideas. That's, that's actually not usually how it works. Um, but it's lonely in the sense that you're spending a lot of time trying to uh, speaking to and trying to speak with strangers as opposed to working with your team. Right, you're out there. You know, if you're an operating company, you're um, you're spending most of the day talking to your you know your manager, your subordinates, or whatever, uh, working together on on kind of a group project. But in venture, it is very individual how you kind of go about sourcing deals, diligencing them, and creating um, ultimately creating an investment recommendation for your partnership. So that you know that part of it, I think, is is pretty surprising. And that's this is not to pick on Kleiner Perkins in any way. I think I'm actually really grateful. I learned a ton. From some really smart people there, but I think that's just traditionally how venture is done. It's very, very individual in nature. Yeah, and how do you, so? How do you track down deals? So you're you're a young guy, right? You're in your office. You're all excited. You're pumped up. You know, everybody's like, "Hey, what are you working on? Way? What's going on?" And you're like, "Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to figure this out." Like, would you do you network? Do you cold call companies that you think are you know cool that could you know ultimately go public? How, how does it? How does it work? Yeah. There, everybody has a different 
strategy here. Mm -hmm. I would say there's a few playbooks. Uh, I, I chose to zag a little bit. Mm -hmm. I, um, you know, I, I built a, um, a very basic web scraper at the time and tried to ingest company information, like, mm -hmm. you know, who they're hiring, how fast they're hiring, what could I infer about the pace of that hiring, uh, about like the company stage and how fast they're growing. And that was something that I would, um, I would just do for a few select companies to try to, to kind of narrow the universe um, uh, to a list that I could just like try to get in front of. And I think that's, that's some form of that has become fairly common where all sorts of firms are looking at pitch book data or crunch book data or credit card data or whatever it is and using that as a filtering mechanism to get to kind of a target list, a lead list of sorts, and then just pounding the phones, trying to kind of get in touch with those founders and, um, and try to start building relationships. So that's at the growth stage, you know, in particular, I think that's a, that's a very common playbook. And then as you move kind of earlier stage, um, you know, I think um, the conventional playbook at least tends to be a little bit more individual relationship driven. You know, folks who, Maybe it's, um, you know, you came from the Google or Facebook mafia and, mm -hmm. you know, you, you're just in touch with a lot of people who, you know, very smart people who are leaving those organizations, starting companies uh, or what have you, or maybe you're part of the YC mafia, you know? So I think that, um, that tends to be. Yeah, wait, um, wait, that's interesting. Yeah. When you say the y, you know, YC mafia, I don't, is that kind of a bad thing now? Because have you seen, uh, who is it, Ryan Breslow from, from Bolt mm -hmm. kind of just lambasting that? Is that. I think, or you just threw that term out there, not really meaning to have. Oh yeah, that wasn't to pick on YC. <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, YC is one of these interesting cases where everybody complains oh, yeah, on yeah. the investor side. That is because um, they've set up kind of these perfect auction dynamics for their companies to raise at maximum prices. And you know, I think a lot of people complain because, um, of course, it's it's just a hyper competitive environment and a very rushed process, right? Um, but that said. Uh, investors kind of, you know, they keep coming back over and over because everybody knows that, you know, there's going to be great companies that graduate from, from YC. Um, so they, they definitely have a, a network effect, um, you know, a really strong network effect going on there. It, you know, because you see that in other areas too, because you could have a restaurant that has great food, but horrible service. And every time you leave, you're like, I'm never going back there. It's such horrible service. But then you're like, well, wow, the food is really good. <laughs> yeah. And then you come back. So I guess that's what happens if, if mm -hmm. the company or the restaurant really could deliver. Yeah, I guess you put up with it. You keep coming back. And that's what happens. Uh, but let me, how is it for your own portfolio? Now that you're, you're a partner, you're kind of, I imagine you, you, you know, you have a name recognition, you have a wealth of networks, networking of people that you can get in touch with. What, what do you have now? What, type of companies do you look for? And are there any particular companies in your portfolio that you'd love to share with people and say, hey, here's something really cool. Here's a company that, you know, I think, I think people may not have heard of, but be really interested in learning about. Yeah. Yeah. One of our companies, um, you know, I think if, if you are parents of young children, you may have heard of this company. It's, it's called uh, Class Dojo. I think they're in, they're in one classroom, at least uh, in, um, you know, in at least like, I think it's like 90% of all U.S. schools. At this point, so amazing wow. um, and usage, and uh, they um, they have a fascinating origin story where, where it started off very much as um, sort of a behavioral management platform, where every student gets assigned kind of an avatar, and instead of um, uh, that's 
that's meant to basically bring online this behavior of like the, the star system, which you may be familiar with of, you know, monitoring kids in school, where if you, if you goof off, like the teacher writes your name on the, you know, on the chalkboard. Um, but of course, having an avatar is, um, is in some ways kind of, you know, much more consistent with, with kids' behavior these days. And there's some level of permanence to it where it's not like you just erase somebody's name. You can actually tally up points and earn points that you can, um, you can use to up-level your avatar over time. And um, it was actually, uh, I think, prescient in many ways, given that we're, um, you know, there's so much talk these days about sort of avatar-centric metaverse. Uh, but they, um, they got a lot of organic adoption across classrooms. And um, they have a really interesting wedge to building a metaverse type, um, you know, a Roblox type kind of um, uh, platform where, um, you know, you could tie a lot of these, these, you know, gaming experience and learning experiences to the actual uh, school social graph, right? Because they actually know who's in these classrooms and the real identity of, you know, teachers and parents. And then you have somebody there to actually moderate uh, a healthy learning environment versus Roblox, which is, you know, much more kind of the wild, wild west and, um, you know, much more kind of prone to uh, uh, abuse. So that's, um, that's one that I think is, is uh, really interesting and in an exciting place to kind of take advantage of some of the, um, some of the, the, the big macro trends that are top of mind for people, uh, but in a really healthy way. So interesting. So if let's say uh, my kids are a little older now, you know, they're like 20, 21, but let's say if I had kids, Christine's, you know, uh, nephew is at the age that they, he, you know, he uses that. So what have they, they have it in the classroom. So you have a laptop and you'll go onto a website. Now, do you need the glass, the goggle, the uh, Oculus or no? You could just go in and you see kind of a 3D-ish, you know, virtual reality. You put on your avatar and then you engage in schoolwork. And like you said, you get stars or you get whatever kind of rewards for doing well in math or spelling or what have you. Is that how it plays out? Yeah, yeah, that could very well be. I, I think it's not... That's a pretty reasonable articulation of what might happen in the future. Today, you know, a lot of, um, you know, today it, it basically works with existing, existing classroom technology, whatever we have, whatever is in the classroom, you know, could be, um, could be iPads, could be, you know, the teacher's computer or what have you. Uh, but they, um, that's, that's the way that they are kind of bringing the, the classroom online, if you will, where now you don't have to, if you're a parent, you don't have to wait six months for the next parent teacher conference to actually like talk to your teacher about what's going on in the classroom and um, and how your kids you know behaving you can actually get a little bit of a real time feed of mm -hmm. you know these these are the projects that are happening right now it's it's typically like you know a lot of mobile photos uh, and so forth that are shared and um, and you can see from your your child's account if they got you know demerits or point you know points knocked off for for misbehaving or um, you know or points for for doing a great job in the classroom so, you know, I think that's, that's what's made it very easy and seamless today. Yeah. But I do think to your point, one day it could potentially transition into whatever form that technology takes, whether it's, you know, smart glasses that you're, that you're wearing on your face yeah. or, you know, a fully immersive VR headset. Uh, and, you know, the, um, the, I think the, the avatar and the mechanics of how this behavior management system works will, you know, it'll be just as relevant in that, in that construct. And why the avatar? What does that serve a certain purpose instead of just having, you know, yourself being on there? Yeah. Yeah. In some ways it's, um, well, look for, when you think about avatars and the allure of them, um, it really is, um, 
I think at the end of the day, the behavior is, is um, playing make-believe, right? And we do it in a number of constructs. You know, adults sometimes do it for uh, cosplay or Halloween or, or things like that. Kids do it all the time, you know? Um, and, um, and, you know, I think they're still playing with, uh, at, their, at their age, they're still playing with kind of like notions of identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think um, the notion of having an avatar that you can level up over time is very natural for kids, perhaps even more so than having your real identity online, which, you know, it, it's um, uh, your real face or what have you. That's, for a kid, maybe that's actually higher, um, that's actually higher friction and more intimidating than, you know, especially if you're still kind of trying to find yourself and experiment with who you really are. In yeah. some ways, like, you know, the, um, the embodiment, you know, the creativity of, of being able to embody an avatar is really attractive. And it's also, um, it also kind of masks, it lets you kind of, you know, be who you want to be, if you will, uh, as opposed to, you know, being attached to kind of, you know, um, your, your real life face and, and so forth. It, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, we've been experimenting with different VR platforms, metaverse platforms, and doing LinkedIn lives. And I was, I was kind of debating to ask you if you wanted to do it, but I figured, all right, you know what, let's just have a conversation, not, you know, have one extra level of friction. And personally, I feel more comfortable having that avatar and being in virtual reality. It's almost like if you're an mm -hmm. actor, you know, I don't know if Tom Cruise, that's his real name or not, but like you know, actors may change their name. You, know, you have mm -hmm. a Nome de Plume if you're a writer, Mark Twain. And it almost kind of frees you up to really be your true self, but you're not burdened with the baggage of who you are, your past and your experience of what people perceive you. So you come in there, I think, with that mask on, with an avatar, yep. as almost like your true self, but without having to worry about all the other stuff. And I think it, it, it makes people, and also we're having a conversation now through Zoom. I have to... I would think, and I'll be very frank, I'm, I, and I think most people feel this way. You think, okay, how's my background? How's my lighting? You know, do uh, you know? Do I have dirt on my shirt? And it on and on, so that it takes you out of the moment mm -hmm. because you're now focusing on other things. Or I'm looking at your background. Hey, what is that? What's over there? And I guess if you have that avatar, just for especially for a young person, it just takes everything away, and you can just do whatever you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty common. Um... I know a lot of people who hate the sound of their own voice. I'm definitely one of those people. And I think it's it's doubly or triply true. Right, can, like can, can we face. break down the fourth wall? Let me direct you. Because Christy, a producer, she's on with these. <laughs> and that's what she says every time. And I say, no, you sound great. And she's like, no, I feel uncomfortable, mm -hmm. you know, you know, hearing it. So that's a common thing, right? It's very common. And I think yeah. um, you know, it, it's even more true for putting your face in front of a camera. Yeah. You know, and so to your point, I think um abstracting away from that a bit relieves that pressure you know with an avatar and the, i guess the flip side of it is there's probably a lot of people who um who feel more like themselves if they could portray something different rather than their you know the whatever physical appearance they have absolutely you know and like um a lot of people who may not feel comfortable you know in their own body or their with their own faces and so um i imagine there's actually a segment of of people for whom you know this is really interesting and um potentially like an enabler of, of, you know, really expressing yourself in a much more authentic way, which is maybe the opposite of what people might assume. It, it, you know, the first reaction I had to advertise was, well, wait, that's why I, you know, couldn't put it together. But then when I did, I went, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. It, it just frees you up and it, it's kind of liberating and all of that. And it's wild. So 
so I spoke with um, author, I can't recall his last name from Somnium Space. And I interviewed going to his metaverse and he had this almost skin tight black outfit, kind of Batman-esque and like a lizard face, but then every once in a while it'd be kind of this helmet. And it's so wild, but he feels so calm. You can tell he's like in his zone. He mm -hmm. is like the truest form of himself. You can just feel it in that, in that garb. He's transcended who he, you know, who in real life he is to probably what he really is, you know, getting into his NFT automobile, which I think he did, by the way, have his, <laughs> I think he had the price tag on it to show up, but I couldn't really catch it. <laughs> it looked pretty expensive. So, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's such an interesting area. Are, are there other, other portfolio companies that also have kind of this futuristic, you know, kind of feel to it of like, of, of that you're working on now? Do you have, where you're looking to, to acquire a company? Yeah, there's a, we have another company called Green Park, which, um, which will be making a number of um, really high profile announcements soon with various leagues on the sports side. But if you can imagine um, one of the areas where you see a lot of people playing uh, make-believe or dress up today is, uh, is in sports, right? People at tailgates are like donning like the massive, you know, the, the um, hats and, you know, the <laughs> yeah, yeah. costumes and like, like the, the cheese head, right? With like yeah, the cheese yeah. block of cheese. Yeah. Exactly, embodying like the um, the mascots and so forth of their respective team, and the um, the depth of that sports fandom is incredibly passionate. Yeah. You know, so that's an area where I think there is a lot of room to to maybe digitize that behavior and create a space online for people to, you know, have those sort of tailgates and be able to kind of like put on the uniform, you know, uniforms and um, trash, you know, maybe trash talk each other a little bit that's, in wow. a healthy way. And would you collectively be watching a game? So let's say you're Green Bay Cheesehead, you have that block of cheese on your hat and you're tailgating. Would you collect, you know, have like a group of your friends just all watching the game together in virtual reality? How, how would that work? That could be one way it yeah. manifests. Look, I, I think there's um there's a question of what's possible today and then what's right. sort of the aspiration of you. And I think you have to figure out how to hold people's hands and kind of like walk them to that long-term you know, uh, vision. So I think, you know, a lot of what, what happens today might need to be, you know, more kind of like um, mobile experience with sort of an element of the metaverse type world. But in the future, for sure, you can imagine, you know, people, um, you know, instead of just um, being at home kind of with on your WhatsApp group with your sports fan kind mm -hmm. of group trash talking each other as you're watching the game, you can imagine kind of um, being there like a house party, you know, watching, watching it with your friends. And, um, being able to kind of like, you know, being able to, I don't know, like throw popcorn <laughs> yeah. you know, in, the, in the stadium, you know, the virtual stadium or do the mini games. You know, if you ever go to, to um, and then, you know, any of these league games, they always have um, in the commercial breaks, there's always, uh, there's always sort of like mini games and things to keep people engaged. You can imagine a digital version of that where, you know, now you're not watching the commercials anymore, but you're, um, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to catch the the virtual T-shirt. Oh, that would be awesome. NFT speakers that are being thrown, you know, flung in the air. Or the you cannon. get on the you get on the basketball court and you get to you know hit some th uh, yeah. you know, three point shots or something. That's right. While the yeah, commercials yeah. going on. Yeah, that's right. So, right. so so wait, is it like that? The technology is is good, but not where it all has to be. So it, I feel like what you're saying is it might take several years to get to where you would feel like, wow, okay we could put into place a lot of things we're talking about and even more so, but right now there's only a certain amount you can do for the time mm -hmm. being, but yeah. eventually it's gonna scale up. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I I have a hard time believing we're going to have fully immersive metaverse experiences of the type that we all kind of consider yeah. to be true metaverse in the next five years or so. Um, I just think everything from the display, the optics, you know, the um, the all of that stuff, the the motion photon latency, um, everything is uh, is still just a little bit of ways away for this to be like a frictionless way to kind of plug in and feel like you're really there with everybody you know. You know, I think that's um, we still got a little bit of ways to to go there. I think we're making some encouraging steps in the right direction for sure. I think the the latest um, numbers from the Oculus headset sales were a bit surprising to me on the upside. So we um. Now, I think Oculus will never publish the underlying engagement numbers. That's probably more important. Uh, interesting. But, um, well, that's you know, telling that they're not giving those numbers, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably hmm. telling. I would say, and there's actually, um, there was actually a poll done by, I forget who, somebody recently did a poll for, for, um, for, for kids, I think, of their, um, their level of engagement with, with Oculus. Uh, and it was um, alarmingly low. So we still, I still think we have a that way makes, to go. But that makes sense because, you know, I wear glasses and you put it on and I have, now little kids probably won't have like the progressives most likely and it's odd. So you're putting it on. So you have your glasses, mm -hmm. then the, the Oculus on top of that. And then you're trying to look. So if I'm having a little difficulty, I can imagine a young child just like having this, you know, big bulky thing put on there when they're not used to it. But then again, people get acclimated really quickly to things. You know, yeah, after a while, think, you get you know you get used to it, especially if it's a game or something you want you're really into. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden you'll figure out a way to do it and be happy with it. Totally, totally. I think there's a little bit of the chicken and egg, as you're saying. Like yeah. you know, once um once people build the behavior, um you know I think we can get over the friction of of you know learning how to integrate this in our daily lives pretty easily. Yeah, that, no, it's speaking with games. It seems to me a lot of I don't want to say the action, but like. You know, from I'm not a techie, but I'm observing it from the outside. But observing it from the outside, it seems like there's you know the cryptocurrency exchanges, there's the NFTs. You have gaming. You have earning you know earning money playing gaming like Axie Infinity. Mm -hmm. Are those are there other things that you see now where you know there's a lot of innovation going on, a lot of new developments happening in tech broadly? beyond yeah. sort of metaverse yeah. and NFT. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's, there's tons. It's interesting. Cause I, I feel like, um, you know, the really, uh, the really sexy stuff is, is like in NFTs and, and metaverse and so forth, but, um, you still have industries that are just being reinvented end to end with software. So many manual processes out there on, you know, I, one of our companies is, is in the personal injury space, for example, super manual, how underwriting gets done there, you know, for, for, um, for figuring out like what are the settlement settlement amounts for um you know for uh for car injury victims and so forth there, there's just so many it's different so weird it's so wild you're saying that way because one of the reasons i was you know the many reasons i was excited to talk with you again it does strike me from an outside observer that it's almost like the venture capitalists are trying to find what silo what sleeve what unique niche can be disrupted and then pile a lot of money into it to own that space. So whether it's like personal injury, like who would think, like what normal person, you need to be a smart, brilliant person to say, hmm, personal injury, let's, let's see how we could really put money into it and, and change it and disrupt it. But I'm, 
are you noticing, is, is that a trend? Like, is that kind of an open thing that people say, okay, hey, we have to find that one thing that hasn't been disrupted yet and we're going to do it and put a lot of money into it and then own that space. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, I think um, that's definitely, there's definitely an element of kind of like um, trying to find kind of the diamond in the rough, if you will. Yeah. That no one else is, is looking at. I would say um, it is not. It's not the only strategy for sure. I think oh, there, right, there's right. a Just lot of VCs yeah. that you know. You're there's there's um you know continue to to, to invest in, um, you know I'm not going to say obvious, but uh, consensus, you know tailwinds that are going to be huge, multi-decade. You know right. mental health, right? A huge area that you know I think a lot of folks continue to to invest in. Um, you know um, consumerization of healthcare um you know data infrastructure and so etc there's so many different places where you know we um you could argue we're at the very early innings of multi-decade you know um uh, inflection points and so you know i think being um being active investors there you could that's that's a completely valid strategy as well uh, but for sure you know i think part of what what gets me excited at least is trying to find these um, these industries and applications that nobody else is is like thinking of or researching and um, and figuring out if there's a way that you can actually, you know, actually transform it with technology. Now, I would ask you that, but you don't want to give it away to everybody. So I probably shouldn't ask you, <laughs> what, or do you want to share like some of these just big picture thing, you know, trends that you think might pay off in, in the long term, in the long run? Yeah, I think... Um, if I were to answer abstractly, if you just think about how much uh, pen and paper and Excel is still out there, it's um it's amazing how much how many industries you know we're we're still just highly highly manual, whether it is um you know um on the everything from like construction side to like the healthcare side, there's just so many different yeah. uh you know so many different workflows that um, you know that you can make much much more efficient I think what is um, really interesting is when you can start to marry digitizing those workflows with um, with data where by virtue of owning that workflow maybe you generate some proprietary data that becomes really valuable to you right um, that's that's what's really interesting in my mind you know we uh, a while ago we had backed a company which um, which had worked with telecom companies and allowed their, um, their customers to basically do like a, a top off of their minutes. If you're thinking about emerging markets where you're buying a prepaid SIM card, right? You may have to like, once you deplete those minutes, you may have to like go to the corner store and buy another prepaid SIM card. And they were allowing, um, they were uh, reducing churn for those telecom carriers by an order of magnitude by saying, don't potentially lose those customers, just have them top off their minutes. Um, by virtue of owning that workflow, they were also generating uh, credit history because these customers, these users that nobody knew anything about, they didn't, you know, these telecom carriers didn't even know the names uh, of these people. Um, they'd have to create an account and they would be laddered up a credit repayment history for these microloans to actually buy these minutes. And um, in that process, they were generating kind of the credit history for, if you will, for the billion unbanked people who live in countries that don't have a FICO score. So that kind of like stair-stepping where, okay, it's not just about owning the workflow itself, but by virtue of doing that, maybe you actually own a piece of data that's really valuable in a non-speculative way, which allows you to kind of get into other businesses. I think that's really interesting. 
that's where you kind of go from just like, you know, just a pure kind of dumb workflow kind of company to um, something potentially bigger. That seems kind of one of the holy grails because there's so many companies I've written about lately about data and so many pitches I get all the time about data. So that seems to be one of the main thing people just so, you know, companies are so interested in and trying to kind of talk about. Um, also, when you mentioned about unbanked, it, makes, it reminds me because when we spoke last, we talked about Axie Infinity. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. as, 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 I, as I understand, that's kind of one of these play to earn games. So you play a video game, but you could earn money. And for people in the Philippines and other places that you don't, there's a lot of poor people, that this is a yep. great way for them to make a lot of money. But then I heard that they got hacked. So maybe you could kind of, for people who aren't familiar with play to earn and, and then unfortunately the hack, mm-hmm. maybe you could kind of talk a little bit about like what that is. Cause that's another interesting kind of, kind of sector, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it's uh, Axie Infinity is, it's a fascinating model where, um, you know, you, you have to, you have to buy an Axie to participate in the game and Axies, um, you know, they, um, up until recently have cost a lot of money. Um, but once you have an Axie, you can basically engage in kind of like, um, I, I want to call it for your average listener, kind of like a Pokemon style mm-hmm. battle against uh, other teams of Axies. And if you win, you earn um, uh, SLP, Smooth Love Potion, which That's is sort right. of the in-game currency. <laughs> this, uh, is, see, this is one thing that this just blows my mind. Within the whole crypto, uh, NFT, gaming, the terminology, it's like you have to learn a whole other language. It's, it's, it's bizarre. You have to kind of, uh, when, when you, sometimes you're, I read something, I'm like trying to translate it into like normal talk where it's just, yeah, not a, a what was it? Soup, uh, love, what, what, what is it called? Smooth love? Smooth love, SLP, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Okay. Yeah, and it's actually only one of three other currencies because you have like a, a governance token and then you've yeah. got, um, anyways, so it's, it actually gets fairly, complex but yeah. i think the basics is um is you're battling other players with these axes which you can think of as kind of like pokemons and um when you win you get the in-game currency which you can actually cash out um you know in uh in DeFi. um so uh you can see that's another one DeFi, decentralized finance right yeah 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 okay. you're, so you're gonna have to you, you'd have to like convert into you know and then kind of like and then you can yeah. convert to fiat but uh the point is you can take your in-game currency and um, yeah. and and uh, cash out in real money, whatever your fiat currency is um, where you live, uh, and so that's um, it, in some ways that's uh, it's kind of like a next generation of um, gaming mechanics, which has allowed um, I would say up until recently allowed people in in poor countries to earn well above minimum wage, sometimes multiples of what they could have earned. Um, which is life-changing for for so many people. Now, one of the downsides of this, of course, is it's the, um, you may ask like, where's the money coming from, right? Is this just like some giant Ponzi scheme? And the money is is actually coming from new players. That is what's pushing up the the demand for the currency um, and the demand for the axes uh, such that you can make money. Right. And so that's, that's kind of like where you could imagine that, you know, the value coming from is, is um, this new player acquisition. Uh, so you, you know, up, constantly need a flood of new people. You need a flood in. of new people. Yeah. Okay. And, and when that dries up, then, you know, you're, then you've got kind of, you know, you've got, um, you've got sort of downward pressure on, um, on, on the economy. And, um, and I believe that's happened um, recently. I think uh, I, I saw, I remember seeing recently that uh, the, um, 
you know, there are periods where now the what you can earn in the game is actually lower than minimum wage in a country like the Philippines. You know, and so there's that's I think there's just there's naturally going to be um, a lot of um, ups and downs for an economy that has kind of the structural design that they have. Um, and then, of course, the other piece of this, which you touched on with the um, with the the hack is they uh, it's you know, it's called a Web3 kind of decentralized game. But, you know, it's actually um, it is actually centralized in certain ways. They actually run their own blockchain called Ronin. Um, which um, which was hacked, right? Because of a, a vulnerability, and um, that's something that, of course, you know, most people are not going to have the means to audit somebody's blockchain, you know, when they when they start joining the game. Yeah. Um. You know, and um, and and so that's you know, obviously, I think at this point, it's been um, it's 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 been shown that it's pretty hard to hack, you know, say, you know, um, the the Bitcoin or Ethereum chains, you know, but uh, but if somebody's developing a de novo chain. And running their game on top of that, um, not many people are actually going to bother to, you know, look at the math, you know, the code underlying it, and figure out if there's vulnerabilities there, you know, uh, and so that leaves players potentially open to having, you know, I don't know, their life savings, their, you know, the, these these axes that they've invested tons of money in, potentially compromised, which, um, you know, which is which is what happened, um, and the other thing that. That is also structural about this game. That's that's uh, challenging. Is uh, at the end of the day, Axie's incentive is to actually have a stable currency, because the currency is being used for something, right? You, it's really really hard for you to kind of plan out your gameplay and so forth if the currency is just like whipsawing up and down. Um, and so as a result, they actually have to centralize the supply of currency, uh, just like the central bank would, right? And that is something that I think most people don't, uh, a lot of people don't, might not realize is like, okay, well, this is a web three company. They, you know, it's the, the token is completely decentralized or what have you, but um, the monetary supply is actually not. And it, it's not because of, you know, the company Sky Mavis being evil. It's because they need to control it yeah. to, you know, try to have some, um, you know, try to have a little bit more control over a functioning in-game economy. So there's all sorts of kind of issues that you know we're still kind of working through to figure out how do you make um, how do you make a game like this sustainable. It it's wild in the sense that when you when you reference it, hey, like Pokemon, so you think okay maybe it's kind of childish, but it's very, it's very sophisticated. And so much so as I recall is that before it kind of went on a downtrend, there's so much money to be made that you had to have bankers. So yes. let's say you know somebody young kids wanted to start out playing they wouldn't have enough money to pony up like going to atlantic city or las vegas to go to the table so you would have to get folks yeah. with deep pockets to support you and then also coaches and managers because you're dealing with a lot of money mm -hmm. that's a hundred percent right yeah there's a, a very sophisticated ecosystem that's kind of cropped up to support that economy like you mentioned you have people who are basically staking players you know buying axes for mm -hmm. them and lending lending it to them and um, in exchange for you know some percentage of their winnings, um, just like staking poker players in Vegas, I suppose you know. And then you've got people who whose job it is to um, recruit, identify, and recruit said players, train them, you know, the player coaches. Oh wait, um, wait. So is this? So maybe there's another career for me in recruiting. Instead of recruiting for like Wall Street folks, I can recruit for players for these games. I don't know. Is that is that a lucrative field or not? <laughs> uh, I, well, I think one day um, 
it very well could be. Today, I would tell you it's a little bit of the wild, wild west. So mm -hmm. I you couldn't guarantee your, your income, yeah. so to speak. Uh, but, um, you know, one day I think, you know, there may be enough games out there like Axie who figure this out where, you know, even if one, you know, Axie, you know, one virtual nation kind of gets hacked or shut down, you could always digitally migrate, you know, to the next economy, so to speak, down the street and make a living there. Is there another one that's kind of, yeah, where everyone's now saying, hey, I want to get in on the beginning, just like with when you hear a new coin and everyone's, oh, I got to get on on this one or the new token because they feel, okay, now I can get it on the cheap and, and take that right up. Is there another Axie Infinity that's out there that people are gravitating towards? Uh, there was a lot of talk of around Star Atlas. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's others that are coming yeah. up too. Um, you know, I, it's it's still early days to know, but uh, but one day, yeah, it could be the case that you've got a number of these virtual nations that have their own GDP and you're doing a little bit of the calculus, just like um, a potential immigrant family. And you're saying, okay, well, you know, do we want to immigrate to America, you know, um, or do we want to immigrate to, to London or what have you? And if, you know, if, if Brexit's going on in London, maybe we go to America. So, so you know. we go to Decentraland or go to Sandbox or we go yeah. to, you know, whatever to be named later, kind of. So a whole alternate universe that you, you'll go to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And hopefully it might be um, less disruptive to like just move your whole family to, to another country uh, in that kind of digital construct. We'll see. In terms of, and, and if you're, I, I don't want to put you on the spot. It's probably not a good way to start a question because like, oh, no, what is he going to ask me? When I, I see some of these valuations of these companies and they seem so high and- yeah. You don't really see a lot of the revenue. You don't see, you know, profits. And this is from mature, you know, startups, you know, that have been around for a long time to, to kind of fairly new ones. And, and I, don't, I don't want to call any company out because I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. But what's mm -hmm. the real deal? Are they overinflated? Are, are, are they real? If it's a, if we hit a recession or, or, or some real turbulence that, yeah. like with Instacart, what, they got 40% cut. Mm -hmm. Just, just overnight, like, oh, imagine how wild is that? Just overnight, oh, you just, you know, we made a mistake. You're 40% worth less, but nothing really changed dramatically. What, how is that? Is this, a, is, is this potentially, and again, dude, this is your life livelihood. So I don't want to put you in a bad spot. So if you want to, if you want to sidestep. No, I'm happy. This is actually, this is actually front and center in, in, in every VC's world right now. Yeah. So, so what I is, think what's it's... the real deal? Like what's going on? Yeah. Look, I, I think there's, there's a real risk. Yeah. Of having, you know, I don't know, a sizable percentage of, um, you know, unicorn companies having to raise flat or down rounds at some point, you know, in, in my opinion, I think um, no question we've had a period of easy money and lots and lots of money piling, especially in the growth stages, pumping up the valuations of companies. And what you're seeing in the, the, the reason I say there could be, um, you know, a, a bit of a correction there is, uh, the mechanism for correct, correcting markets on the private side is very different. So the public markets, you sort of see the um, you, you sort of see the the market fall in real time. The private markets, you don't have market corrections in that way because there's no mark to market. Right. Right. You're not pricing an Instacart or what have you real time, based on investors. Those trades are not publicly traded. But are there platforms where you can trade? You know, on on these private markets, uh, you know, on these private companies, or or if they are, they're very thinly traded and it's not. I would say, yeah, not certainly not a meaningful portion of okay. the trading volume of any of these, you know, any of the, the, these companies. Um, 
And so most of these companies, they don't get marked to market until call it six, nine, 12 months after the public markets crash, right? And it's because these companies, they'll scrape a little bit of money from insiders. They will, you know, um, they'll let a few people go. They'll shave costs, et cetera. They'll stretch out their runway a bit more, right? To delay the inevitable coming back to market, raising money, you know, where the multiples are going to be much lower. Uh, and so for a lot of those companies, you're going to have a period over the next, you know, call it like six to 12 months where we're going to kind of find out who, you know, who's the emperor with no clothes, if you will. Um, they're going to, eventually they're going to have to come back and, um, you know, and, and raise kind of in a, in a much more sober environment. Um, but it's just, unless, unless it's maybe Web3, who knows what's going to happen with yeah. Web3. I feel like companies in Web3 are still getting insane valuations. And then what if, and what if they can't raise? I, I guess they just get acquired or maybe just some just close their doors and that's it. I think a lot of those companies are still, look, they're still great companies that, that just happen to kind of raise at, at valuations over their skis. And so they'll maybe just go through a bit of the painful taking, taking of their medicine, you know, where they, uh, they raise flat rounds or, or down rounds. I, I think these are still, a lot of these are still fundable companies. I think for some of the companies, maybe who have no revenue or like, you know, just um, the unit economics are upside down and somehow they got away with it. Those are the companies that I think are at huge risk of, of potentially imploding, especially if they're like in very capital intensive industries where there's still a lot of fundamental tech risk, for example. I can imagine seeing a lot of those headlines in the next six to 12 months. But um, if you're thinking about your fundamental kind of like high growth, high margin SaaS business, who just happened to raise at 100X, 200X revenue, um, you know, those companies, uh, there's, you know, there's still going to be a place for those companies. They just may have to retrade um, on their valuations a bit. So, so if a company has a really strong business model, they have the ability to bring in revenue and profits, they, you know, they may take a hit, but they could survive and start to keep going. It's mm -hmm. the ones that maybe sound sexy and cool and awesome and get a lot of buzz, but there's not that much behind it. They may have some trouble moving yeah. forward. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. we're kind of seeing that. Aren't we seeing this a lot in the tech space, the publicly traded tech space, right? Where you see a lot of the valuations starting to get compressed now, where it's you're realizing, wait a minute, with inflation raging, with maybe a recession coming near, uh, maybe they're not, you know, that we everyone got crazy during the pandemic because we're all home and nothing to do but buy stocks and trade stocks. All of a sudden, now it's coming down to some reality. So I guess the same thing would hold for the private markets with, with, you know, these- uh, With the delayed you know, time fuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Is that what happens first? Usually you'll see with the public companies because they're traded, so you see it in real time happening. Yeah, I think so, that's what happens, so yeah. So, so, so in the VC world, a lot of people are like kind of nervous and worry, like you know, crossing their fingers, hoping that everything goes okay, we get through this, or how, how do they like hedge against it? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of mixed emotions. I, I would say, I can speak for myself, that um, I think some level of market correction is healthy, right? The, the level of competition, the level of um, you know, money coming in, funding companies at any price, and, um, and the level of just how the sheer number of companies getting funded such that any company is going to have like six, seven, a dozen competitors immediately, all fighting for the same talent, if you will. I think it was probably getting a little unhealthy. Um, and so I think, you know, some level of market correction is probably good for um, the system as a whole. Now, I'm not naive, so naive as to think that, you know, there won't be bumps along the road if there's a market correction for, you know, our portfolio, everybody's portfolio, 
you know, no question that will happen for sure. But I'm hoping that, um, especially if the correction happens where it's like, um, you know, it, it's it's like air being let out of the balloon as yes. opposed to like a super, you know, um, a super kind of dramatic crash at, at one point in time. Um, you know, I'm hoping that um, that will be a net positive. Yeah, because we were kind of seeing that with the stock market where it was like the air was coming out. We went into kind of, depending on what sector, you know, it was a correction or bear market. But then all of a sudden it started kind of tricking, you know, coming up again, which in a way, I would have almost wanted it to get the air out so you don't have to keep going up and then it just gets a real savage drop because that's when everybody panics and freaks mm -hmm. out because then you see those huge numbers of declines and you turn on you know CNBC and everything is in red literally not just yep. the, you know you're not just the ticker symbols but like you ever notice that <laughs> to scare people and then they get freaked out like I'm selling it just becomes horrible so like I agree with you having that air taken out gently and then you could see like you said who are the ones who really then you could kind of probably see okay these are the ones that are going to survive and thrive, and I'm going to bet on them. And here are the ones that uh, it shows they're kind of on weak legs, maybe not so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, for people who are watching this, and as, as, as you know, you know, we have a great resignation. We have months of 4 million Americans quitting where there's a war for talent. And with the pandemic, um, we've all seen people kind of just reevaluated their lives and careers. So if somebody wants to kind of pivot and maybe move into venture capital or maybe some, let's say they're in a traditional Fortune 500 company, maybe they're in a, working for a Credit Suisse or Deutsche Bank or JP Morgan or Citigroup. And they're like, hmm, maybe there's more to life than just doing that. Maybe, you know, I wanna try something cool and different, a cool FinTech, an interesting startup. Hmm. Is that possible for people to kind of reinvent themselves and pivot in this space? And if it is, like, how hard is it to do that? And I know it's general because everyone's going to have different skills. You could be an accountant, you could be a lawyer, mm -hmm. you could be a software engineer, everything's different. But is it hard to enter to some of these, you know, is, is, is uh, the barrier to entry really high or not? There is a, there's still a massive talent war mm -hmm. for very smart, kind of highly motivated people who can have a huge impact. It's startup companies. So I think um, it's, um, you know, look, look, there's, there's um, as you mentioned, the pathway is going to be a little bit individual, but um, here's what I would share. Um, if you are a smart generalist working at, um, you know, working at, at a large company um, and you're potentially interested in dipping your toes, I think there's just so many different ways you can, you can get involved. Right. Um, there's so many companies that um, would love help in any way. One, one of the ways that that I, I first started, you know, dipping my toes in the startup world was um, just volunteering, kind of networking, finding, um, you know, really interesting folks who are who are building businesses and volunteering some of my time um, you know, to work with them. And um, that is what um, what gave me a little bit more uh, of the conviction that this is kind of where I want to take my career. And which helped build a little bit of the credibility for me to, to approach kind of the next hot new startup, if you will, and uh, convince them that, you know, I, was, um, I wasn't just kind of a fair weather, um, you know, person kind of dipping my toes, but um, I, would I was ready to make the jump, you know. So I think that there are, there are definitely ways that, you know, you can go about doing this. Um, and I'm happy to share more about the, um, the specific things I would look for in a company if you're kind of like a smart generalist. Um, 
but uh, I saw you're about to say something. So happy to come oh, up quickly. Yeah, if you're if you're kind of a it, does that work if you're a younger person to do that and say, hey, you know, I just graduated, you know, maybe a year or two out of a really prestigious school, help out. But if you're like 30s or 40s or 50s, does that get weird and awkward and uncomfortable, or is that still possible? You're right that it's definitely more common in the former. <laughs> Right. Um, the later, the later you go, I think the more, um, the more folks are going to ask, you know, what caused you to sort of have this awakening, right? right? If you're kind of like a lifer at a yeah, fortune 500 yeah. company, it infers something about your risk aversion, your risk tolerance, if you will, and the kind of environment, you know, the, the, the level of structure you need to be, um, to be productive. And so, you know, I think, um, part of what somebody would ask is, okay, well, we're, you know, we're a fast growing startup. It's super unstructured. It's, um, it's very self-directed. It's very messy and chaotic. And there's a certain kind of person who's going to thrive here. Um, and, you know, I would, I think it's in your best interest and the company's best interest to figure out, you know, um, you know, whether or not that that's actually an environment you would thrive in. And, um, you know, I think, uh, that's why it behooves you, I think, to, to try to figure out ways to kind of put yourself in those environments right. if you haven't before to see what it's like and um you know and it doesn't necessarily have to be in um in a company in a corporate setting by the way right one can take risks in different ways as well whether it's um you know trying to build a business like a little project on your own mm -hmm. hacking together a little, little project trying to teach yourself you know a little bit of code trying to you know hack together a side project on your own or you know taking um a path less traveled in um you know uh, in, in volunteering, you know, for, you know, this certainly happened for, for something that's a little bit more startup like, or, or, you know, a tech company like, I think there's, there's, um, there's a number of ways that you can start to demonstrate that, you know, that's the environment, um, that you can thrive in. So, you know, that's, um, uh, that's, that's my, my feeling on that. Um, and in general, you know, I do think that there is such a huge demand for, um, for smart generalists mm -hmm. who can thrive in that kind of environment, particularly around kind of like whatever you want to call it, um, series A-ish, series B-ish, where, you know, um, I mean, you probably know this, when you, when you look at, um, you look at these companies, they, not, they don't have, you know, any sort of C-suite. There's no CFO, there's no COO, there's no like CSO. It's like the founders and a bunch of developers. And that means by definition, the founders are doing all those things. Right, they are the they are the CFO. They are the chief strategy officer, the chief product officer, the chief blah blah blah. Um, and as a result, you know, there's a lot that you can, you know, pick up and um, and do to be high leverage to them. Uh, and then when you do that, you know, um, you can grow alongside the company, um, uh, where it's you know it's it's it should be post product market fit at that stage. And then you can eventually slot yourself into a home where one day that company is going to be series C, series D, whatever, and they're going to be looking for the world's best specialist in every seat, right? Like somebody who on the operation side has been there, done that before, you know, somebody on the finance side, who's been a growth stage CFO before, right? Um, and if you're a smart generalist, when a company gets that mature, you're not going to be at the front of the line for any of those, any of those roles. And you're probably going to come in fairly junior, right? Um, but if you can get in kind of right before that actually happens, and potentially earn the right to take one of those seats, you know, and show that you know you were smart enough, um, agile enough to actually build that expertise and learn it yourself. That's where I think people can kind of really propel themselves uh, on their career. 
much more quickly than they otherwise would. So that's that's a little bit of like the um, the uh, the the ideal scenario, the best case scenario, I think, if you're trying to get you know trying to find yourself a seat on the rocket ship. That's really helpful because if I could distill it down, it sounds like a couple of tracks. One could be, let's say, and it doesn't have to be younger. I guess you just have to have that attitude of I could put my ego aside and say, hey, I'll come there. What can I do to help? Or if you kind of did your research about the company and know where they need to help, say, hey, I do X, Y, and Z, and I, I, I think I could add some value to help at, and this be at any age. But as you get older, it's harder. And then if you are a little bit older and you're in a more conservative kind of organization, you're going to have to really tell your story, how you could operate. And I see this as a recruiter when it goes to a startup where there's, there is this bias. And I understand it way of thinking, okay, you're, you've been at Citigroup and JP Morgan for 10, 20 years, you know, you're in your lane, you, you know, you, you're that corporate, can you deal with something that's messy and just on fire and everything's going nuts and everything's going wild every day and you got to juggle it and you can't turn to a, you don't have a bench of a hundred people in compliance, a hundred people in legal, a hundred people, you know, in, in, in literally like, you know, hundreds of people in HR. So you got to figure it all out. So you have to tell your story. Here's how I, yeah. Even though I did that conservative route, I'm, I'm, I'm a risk taker and other things. Cause maybe I'm, mm -hmm. I don't know, it's, you know, uh, some skier going off the biggest mountains. Uh, yeah. you know, I've done other Absolutely. things so I can show, yeah. Mm -hmm. And other spots in my life, I'm take these risks. So, so it's really kind of getting in there and adding value. And then it sounds like if you get your foot in the door, particularly in a place that's kind of starting out and you make yourself valuable as it grows, then you have a better chance of really kind of participating in that growth. And then I guess even if it doesn't work, what I notice with a lot of these kind of new companies compared to the more traditional ones, they're more okay with you working at a place, you're there for a while, like, okay, now I'm going to the next one and next one and next one, as opposed to like the more, you know, the legacy corporations, it's kind of frowned upon to kind of keep mm -hmm. moving. So right. it is right. Okay. You get there and okay, I got the experience. Now I can kind of leapfrog to the other one and so on, just keep moving. Mm -hmm. And now you're in that whole ecosystem. Yeah. 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 I think those are, those are great summaries. Cool. So before we go, cause I don't want to take too much of your time. I, I really appreciate it. And, and, and I'm sorry if sometimes I ask these third grader questions, but I find out it's really helpful for myself and for the audience to really get it. Cause like you hear these things, you're not sure. And you know how people are. Sometimes they don't want to ask cause they're embarrassed. They feel, oh, I should know it. So I, I, I have no qualms about asking these kind of questions. So this way you can really learn and everyone else can learn. So to, you know, later today when they're reading the Wall Street Journal or the New York Post business section, whatever, they could be like, oh, I got DeFi. Yeah, I just heard of that today. Oh, I, I get what DeFi is. Oh, pay to earn. Oh, NFTs. Oh, I get it. And, and so they feel, oh, and that gives them more confidence that if they are interested, because a lot of people now, everybody's interested in like what the next job is, next opportunity, next business. So then they say, hey, let me check this out. You know, and that, you know, so someone who could be watching this now ends up getting a cool job from it. So this is so, mm -hmm. so awesome. Uh, before we go, any last minute things that maybe I didn't ask you or you'd like to share about what you do as in maybe as an operator, as a business person, anything else you'd like to share? No, I think, um, no, your questions were, were awesome. I didn't think they were third grader level at all. Hopefully I answered them. And uh, yeah, I, I, um, for aspiring entrepreneurs or people who are starting companies, um, you know, check out Signalfire. I think we're, um, we're doing some really awesome stuff as it relates to um, company building within the venture space and, and trying to do something very different. So, so, so let's say hypothetically, there's a guy who 
has been an executive recruiter running a search firm for like 25 years, writes for Forbes, and they have a business. So I could kind of hypothetically reach out to someone like you and say, here's what I want to do. Now, what would you have to do? Have like a whole pitch deck or how does that work? Or you just say, hey, here I am. Can we talk? And I don't mean just you personally, but just in general. How, how, how does that? Yeah, the best way by far is getting a warm introduction. Yeah. I think for, you know, that's... um. You know, unfortunately, that's just sort of the way that venture capital yeah. works because there's just so much, uh, just a flood of inbound kind of ideas and so forth that um, most venture capitalists just don't have the time, quite frankly, just to kind of um, sift through them. So that's that's just sort of um, a first filter. Um, that said, if um, you know we do have um, we do have a channel for inbound startups at signalfire.com um, uh, over email. And um, we do have somebody who's who's uh, who's trying their best to kind of look at look at everything there. And if you do that, I would just try to have a very targeted pitch on this is what we're this is what we're doing. This is why we think it's it's a big opportunity, and this is why we have an unfair advantage. Um, cool. You know, so that's, this is great, man. Yeah. Wait, you gave like a master class in what you know VC world is, you know, about startups, NFTs, earn to play you know, what to do if you want to be entrepreneurial. So this is great. I think for the people watching it, this is exactly what they want to find out. Like they just want options and choices and to know what's out there. Because sometimes especially when you don't know what's out there, you don't even know what to ask for. But then you hear things, you go, I'm going to do some more homework on it. I'm going to look more into it. I'm going to, you know, check, you know, I'm going to send a message to waiting to signify or see what's all going on over there or, or, or other places. And it opens up opportunities. And that's, to me, that's what's so awesome about doing these podcasts and also writing is because it turns people on to things that they never thought, you know, they could do or want to do or be interested in doing. They realize, wow, I could do this. This is fantastic. This is great. I'm so, mm -hmm. I'm so excited. This could be the new part of my life, you know, this new post-pandemic you know, version of myself. And, and I think yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's exhilarating. See, it's maybe weird way because we're still technically in a pandemic. We could be in a world war three, but I'm so excited about like what's going on. Cause I speak to people like you every day. We're doing cool stuff, innovations, new tech, new apps, new platforms, and it doesn't get reported enough, uh, you know, like, you know, on, on, on major media. And I, I enjoy bringing you know, it out to people because there are great things happening. And it's really mm -hmm. awesome. So I appreciate you taking the time and sharing your knowledge with everybody. And, uh, and then hopefully it really impacts some folks. And hopefully we'll hear, I'll get some good success stories because I hear back from people that I could always text you and say, oh my God, you're not gonna believe this. What are, what are you, this woman heard about it and now look what she's doing. And, I'll, and, and, and it just, it'll make our days when you hear that. So thank you very totally. much for your time, my friend. Absolutely. Thanks Excellent. so much for having me on. Uh, take care, Wade. Right. Take care, Bye -bye. Jay. Bye. Bye.